0: again. Cheever has a run on Kenny Breck here on the main straightaway. Kenny Breck crashed on the parade lap last year and he's got him in third 51. That's Eddie Cheever. He takes
1: the lead and now he has off to the races. He's pressed the lead out into the second turn.
0: Eddie Cheever picks up the pace as they come off corner number four. Cheever goes to the inside trying to break a bit of a draft. Buddy Lazier is right behind him as they head for turn one. He almost brushed the outside wall of the short shoot.
1: But he's still the leader going through four with Lazier trying to catch him. But it's Cheever in control as they head toward one. Everybody standing and cheering. Eddie Cheever, he's going to get his first. Eddie around through
0: four. His hand pumping in the air. He heads for the finish. In his night start, Eddie Cheever wins the 1998 1998- 80-second running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Cheever was the first driver-owner to win Indy since A.J. Floyd did it back in 1977. There are fewer than 30 men in the world qualified to drive Formula One. A mere half dozen, perhaps, to win. At this moment,
2: I'm inclined to think you're not one of them. you want to
0: keep up the good work and there you have it there you go welcome to f1weekly.com my name is clark rogers i'm the host of the program i'll be joined by nasser hamid my co-host this is podcast number 1018 november 13th 2023 nasser thank you sir how is the host doing on the left coast Thank you, Nasser, on today's program, Viva Cold Las Vegas. Temperatures at night will be in high 40s. Will this really be the greatest show on earth? Max says he doesn't even know the track, and Toto has banned all Mercedes personnel from gambling. And, ladies and gentlemen, this week's interview, the man who drove for Italiano's He drove for the French, he drove for the British, he won the 1998 Indy 500, driving the Rachel's Potato Chip Special. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Eddie Cheever. And, just a reminder, we need your contributions to keep this program on the air. Just click on the Support F1 Weekly tab, you know, you want to. NASS, welcome to the studio, introduce this fantastic, fantastic interview
3: thank you, sir. First of all, I would like to uh, thank Mr. Eddie Cheever. We met uh, briefly at uh, Petit Le Mans at Road Atlanta, and he was kind enough to give me a contact info to reach out uh, to set up an interview. And, you know, obviously I followed his career for a long time, and he was racing at Monza 1982, which was my first race. So he's uh, an American success story. He was born on January 10. 1958 in phoenix arizona his family moved to rome when he was five years old and mr rogers since you have lived in europe yourself once you arrive in the land of ferrari and novelari it doesn't take too long to discover the wonderful world of racing eddie was european karting champion he won races in british f3 and driving for ron dennis he won races in formula 2 and finished second to Rene Arnoux in the 1977 European Formula 2 championship. Ahead of such drivers as Didier Peroni, Riccardo Patrese and Keke Rosberg. Eddie had nine podium finishes in Formula 1, among them in Phoenix, his place of birth and Parco Monza. The highlight of his career, as you mentioned, was winning the greatest spectacle in racing in 1998. So my sincere thanks to Eddie for his time and to Miss Jennifer for our help in making this possible. Thank you. Eddie, your story starts from Phoenix, Arizona, your birthplace, and you were raised in the Italian capital, Roma. I understand your first race was at Parco Monza as a young kid. Can you tell us a little bit about this race and what you remember most?
2: Well, the first race I saw as a, yes, as a child, Uh, um, I think I was probably seven or eight uh, it was a, it was in the fall, and it was a sports car race at Monza. It was the first time I had seen racing cars, and I remember it because we left before the race was over because a Swiss driver in the Ferrari had an accident, and my father told me that he had almost been decapitated and he died. And that kind of stuck in my mind. Um, but that was yes, that was the first race I saw.
3: Wow! No, was the driver Silvio Moser?
2: I, I don't remember the name, but I, I know I looked it up. I've looked it up more than once, and so I, I don't remember the name of the driver. I just remember he was driving a Ferrari.
3: Yeah, what a start to your racing story here. Okay, uh, your dad was the driving force behind your career in your early days, taking you out of school so you could practice in the rain and making you run two miles every night. As a young kid, did you enjoy this kind of, uh, what I would call, strict discipline, if I may? Or were you just happy to be out of the school?
2: I adored my father. So whatever he whatever he thought was necessary to do, I did that and a little bit more. Um, he was the one that made racing go-karts possible and um he said that it was important that i had to be fit so if i had to run 2 miles every night before dinner i was happy to run my 2 miles before before dinner but it wasn't just that i had i had to do karate and the funny thing was everything he made me focus on was physical he never had an enormous interest in my in my more formal education but he did in anything and anything that would make me stronger more resilient Good.
3: Now, you were karting, a European karting champion and race against other kids who made it to Formula One, like Elio De Angelis and Riccardo Patrese. Uh, please tell us a little bit about your karting life and best memories.
2: Well, I started racing at a track in Rome called the Pista D'Oro, which had had the world championships a few years earlier. It was won by a girl, Susanna Raganelli, I think her name was. And she had beaten Ronnie Peterson, who by that time when I was racing in go-karts was a Formula One driver. So it made everything more romantic as a child that we were racing on the same circuit that Ronnie Peterson had raced on. Elio and I started racing at probably the same time, same race, same everything. And I remember the first race I won, uh, which I think was the fourth race that I did. He finished second. And you mentioned Patrese. Patrese and I ended up being teammates at Yame and Biro, which was, was like the official Italian team for two years, two or three years. We did a lot of racing together. I one year I won the European Championship, he finished second, he won the World Championship and I finished second. So I, w- I was always measuring myself with Riccardo, who I would say is unequivocally the best driver, best Italian driver of his generation.
3: Now, you mentioned you won your fourth race. Was this based mostly on pure driving talent, natural talent? Or was there a lot of uh, pre-race uh, testing uh, before this event?
2: No. It was a game. It was a game that we played. My, I would go to the races with my dad. he put the go card on top of the car. And Elio would go with his dad. And they would have fun and we would race. But there was no testing. It was... It was it was just a, uh, an exciting moment to spend with your dad and your friends and it happened to be racing go-karts the the formality of testing started two or three years later which there was it became very intensive picking the engine picking the frames picking the types of tires and then the higher up we went when we got into the first category which was like the formula one category for cars then that became a lot more serious but it was a gradual process it, you didn't just wake up one morning and you were trying to win the world championship. It, it took two or three years.
3: Now, in your karting days, were you signing autographs as Eddie Cheever, Formula One driver like Elio? <laughs>
2: no, I wasn't signing autographs. Elio, Elio, was, I, Elio was also an artist. So when we were sitting on this wall in the Pisadora when they were fixing our go karts, he was very good at drawing, and he would draw the Lotus. And he would sign his name as Elio D'Angelo's driver of the Lotus. And I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I could ever seen. And lo and behold, he, that's how he started his Formula One career, probably some of the best races he had. He had driving a Lotus, so he was clairvoyant, I guess.
3: Now, when you were in karting, had you already decided that this is going to be your career down the road?
2: No. I mean, I... I in those days, I don't know now, but in those days, thinking just because you are throwing a baseball at maybe 80 miles an hour, you're going to be in the World Series is almost as insane as that. So I, I never actually thought. I think my father might have thought about it when we started winning races, and he was the one to generate everything. But no, I, I only thought about it being a career or something I'd want to spend 10, 20 years in was when I started racing Formula 3 in England. And then then it became more, more possible, more feasible. The plan would open in front of you. You would win a race. I noticed that when you won races, all these people come up and talk to you. And I, I met a certain Ron Dennis after the second win I had in Silverstone. I had no idea who Ron Dennis was. I don't even think Ron Dennis had any idea who Ron Dennis was. But it's just a question of being in the right place at the
3: right time now in those days motor racing was very dangerous uh, your mom and dad were fully behind your career or was there any concern about that you know hey this might get a little too serious my
2: my mother was always nervous about it but she never she never tried to stop me from racing and my dad just had certain rules that i had to do certain things and they were they were all about being coming stronger and having more endurance and being able to focus more. And I'm sure when he was doing that, he was thinking of you and you know, it was it would be safer if you were in, in control of what you were doing. There's nothing worse than driving a race car when you're tired and you start to lose focus. And I'm just getting back to the danger point, but when drivers look at the cars they're racing now, 20 years from now, they will say that the cars that they're racing now are not safe. I will tell you the cars are racing now are incredibly safe to what we did but I never thought about that for a moment. I never when I got older I did when I was racing with Indy I saw ice it becomes more of your psyche of what you're thinking about but at, at 18, 19, 17 you don't think about that. You dream of glory. You dream of winning a Monaco Grand Prix.
3: You don't you quickly forget when somebody dies in a race car at that age. Now, I remember, and this is the first time I heard your name, a teenage Eddie Cheever invited to a test session by Scuderia Ferrari. What was your first reaction when your mom told you Daniel Odetto from Ferrari was trying to reach you?
2: How do you know all these things? How did you, where did you read all this? That's, that's a, I know Few people know Odetto. I'm impressed. Thank you. Um, well, I had just come back from a Formula 2 race in Enna. Well, I was second chasing KK Roseburg and uh, he put up some, he went over the curbs and he put dirt on the track and I and I made a big mistake and I spun off, so I was a little bit annoyed at having it had a bad race. My mother told me that Ferrari was on the phone and I thought it was one of my idiot Italian friends making fun of me. So I didn't answer it, they probably called two or three times before I went to the phone and it was Daniel Leodetto, who I knew it who it was, and he said his name because he was a team manager of Ferrari at that time. So I, I was um, happy, uh, anxious. But I, I had spoken earlier that year to Bernie Eccleston with Ron Dennis about doing some testing in, the, in one of his cars, um, in a Brabham. So I was excited. Um, my life changed dramatically with that one telephone call.
3: And uh, do you remember your first meeting with Commendatore Ferrari, which lasted for a few hours? How could I not
2: remember the first meeting? Yes, I do. I remember. I even remember the color of shoes I had on. Yes, I, I did. They, they told me to drive from Rome, and then they told me to stop at a certain bar, and somebody would pick me up with a car, and then we'd go through a certain gate, and then I'd go to his office, and I ended up in the Commendatore's office. And his desk was up higher. It was like two or three feet higher than the normally it would be. And um, and, I, and his male secretary just left me standing in front of his desk. And he was busy writing something. I probably stood there for 30 seconds without knowing what to do. And then he started talking and he said, when you drive my cars, you don't go over the curbs, which I think was in reference to the problems I'd had in Enna. Then he came down, we, I sat in a chair, in a, like a leather chair, he sat Another comfortable one, and he started talking. And the meeting lasted over two hours. And all the things that I've done in racing, um, none even come close to the value that I give to those two hours. And after that, I signed a contract with Ferrari. So everything was good.
3: Now you were testing at the private test Fiorano, and your times were pretty close to Carlos Carlos Reutemann, who was an established star. Uh, Did you get the feeling at that time, as a teenager, I have arrived in Formula One? Oh yeah, for sure.
2: I tested the car for a week. I I got tired of driving the car, I did that many miles. But Reutemann was the one who was making all the first tests for Michelin tires. Ferrari was changing over to Michelin tires, and he he would either be in the track or I would be in the track. And uh, it it was amazing. It was an amazing week. This listening, I learned things just listening to Reutemann driving. I saw things that I'd never seen before. I, I had jumped from a Formula 2 car to a Formula 1 car. But not just a Formula 1 car, Nicky Lauda's Formula 1 car. So it was, it was um, very, uh, I was absorbing a lot of information in a very short time.
3: Now, Reutemann was Lauda's teammate and Lauda wrote in his book that he was no friend of uh, Carlos Reutemann. And uh, Reutemann was teammate to Mario Andretti at Lotus, and Mario called him aloof. How did you find him uh, when you were testing at Fiorano? Well,
2: let me preface by saying no teenager had ever been invited to a Formula One team like Ferrari to test ever in the in the history of racing. So I was looked upon as a as you know something abhorrent by the older drivers, something that shouldn't shouldn't be there. So. I only had one one interest was to go as fast as I can. And I went too fast once and I had a big accident and I had all I went through like three rows of catch fence and I thought I was going to be sent home and they just said, What did you learn? Did you learn anything? And I explained it and we went testing the next morning And So getting back to your question with Reutemann, I had very little interaction at that test with Reutemann. He was busy doing his thing. I was being seen busy following rules and doing what they had told me to do. So I I, I, I then went on to become a, a good friend of Whitman. I got along very well with Whitman later in my career. But, but at that test, I, I, it was not a social event. My job was to get in the car and drive, stop, debrief, get in the car and drive again and go quicker. So my focus was on something else. But I was acutely aware of what Whitman was doing and the times that Whitman had and, um, and, and trying to get as close as I could, which I think I got within two or three tenths by the end of the test
3: around uh, the same time you were part of bmw junior team how did this deal right. come about and how was your experience in working with mr Jochen Nirpash
2: before the opportunity was given which ron dennis is the one that negotiated that i did not know who Jochen neerpash was so i i met him throughout this whole process and i would say he was had a great idea he got three young drivers gave them great cars and let them loose. And we created a lot of havoc. There there was lots of crashing in the beginning. Uh, Driving for BMW was awesome. I really enjoyed it. It was the first time I worked. This was before the Ferrari test. It was the first time I had worked with a manufacturer. And their main goal was winning at the old Nürburgring. So we did thousands of miles on the old Nürburgring, which is the most phenomenal, very dangerous, but the most phenomenal track in the world. So it was it was great. I really enjoyed your in in BMW and racing in Nurburgring. And some I remember some of the races in Nurburgring would have over a hundred thousand people because there was this big battle between BMW and Ford. And, uh, and my teammate was the senior team, which was Hans Stuck and Ronnie Peterson. So it was a it was a phenomenal experience. It was all it was all about nothing more than just driving. Racing
3: in its purest forms. Right. Now it was in a BMW crash at Vallelunga near Rome, all for five hundred dollars, which you did not receive. That <laughs> that you broke your arm, and then got a get well soon message from Enzo, and few days later you learned they have signed Gilles Villeneuve, and you made, I understand, four trips to Maranello requesting release from Ferrari testing contract. Question I have, what was the motivation trying to get out of a Ferrari contract of all the team and what advice you had on this from your dad? I don't ever remember
2: talking to my dad about it, but by that point in my life, I lived in a separate, I had my own apartment. So I, I, I was at that stage where you don't want to spend that much time with your parents. I wished I had of because he probably would have set me straight. I didn't break my arm, I broke my hand, I broke my left hand you're missing one one part of your statement is missing and when i broke my hand and i was in the hospital i read that they had signed who i had raced with that summer the bmw of monsport who i knew i knew well i'd raced with him even when i was racing for ron dennis he raced with the team at pope so i was aware of jill and then i read that they had signed him and and although i was not guaranteed the only thing that i that Mr. Ferrari talked a lot about was me doing a lot of miles in the car and getting prepared for one day to race with him. But I probably, I suspect, had I remained a Ferrari, I would have raced a Ferrari Formula 2 car for, for the 78th season. So I was, I was, um, I had enjoyed the test. I had an offer to race with a, a much lesser team, which I accepted. And for me to be able to race in Brazil, with the Theodore, I had to be freed from the contract I had with the Ferrari. So I went there four times, and, it was, and the first three times, he would not see me. And then I walked into his office, I explained what I wanted to do, I seen, and he said, and you want me to release you from the contract? And uh, I said, yes, please. So he took the contract, turned his back, and walked out of the office, and that was the last That was that. So it was probably just, it was a horrible decision, but it was a decision that was mine to make, and I made it, and I, I went from the best Formula 1 car to the worst Formula 1 car Uh, when I turned up in Brazil. No, I turned up in Argentina trying to qualify, which we didn't. We didn't qualify. This is a brand new car. We didn't qualify in Brazil. We didn't qualify in Argentina.
3: You already mentioned the name of Ron Dennis, and you raced for him uh, before reaching Formula 1. How did you find him as a team boss, and what did you learn most from him?
2: I would say that 90% of... When you're young, you absorb things very, very well. You're very receptive to things. So after I I met him in Formula... After racing Formula 3 in England, I met him. He had a Formula 2 car. He, He wanted me to test the Formula 2 car, which I did. And he and my father sat down and they did an arrangement where Ron Dennis would prepare and run the Formula 3 car for the end of the season, which we won two races in Germany. I think the Jerry Bill Pete uh, was I forget what it was, I don't remember his name Schaefer or something like that so after that we did the next year we did a Formula 2 program and I started racing consistently for one and project four I think it was called so getting back to your question in my age I everything just about everything I ever learned in racing I learned from one Ron, I would say one knew more about racing than anybody I've ever been around, because he was a mechanic, and the chief mechanic, for people like Brabham, and and then he set up four companies, three of which failed, but he kept getting better and better at what he was doing, and what Brown did with McLaren was incredible. So he he was he was the, my source of information, my source of criticism, and in the, the last season I did. The best season I did with him was in '77, when we probably would have won the championship had I not broken my hand at Valenluga, because that was the next and last Formula Two race of the season, which Arnoux won the championship, and I finished second. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I would say that I don't know if it was because I was young and just learning, or because. Ron just had so much information but he was very good at guiding you
3: Great, now later on you had some phone conversation with him about joining uh, his Formula 1 program how close you came to driving for McLaren in Formula 1
2: uh, I don't think very close I was probably on a list of 3 or 4 drivers that he was calling and speaking to I, I think the disagreement was about money, I, I wanted a certain amount which was I, I, I don't remember, I don't even remember which team I ended up with but I only one time did I have a discussion with him on the McLaren. I didn't nowhere because I think I already had an offer. But, but I was I was married and I had a family and so I was I was probably focusing on the wrong thing which was money at that point.
3: Your first podium came at Solder 1982, a very sad weekend for motor racing. What was the mood in the paddock on Sunday especially among fellow drivers? Terrible.
2: Terrible. I, I I was on the track at the same time that that horrible accident happened with Joe. Um, I was, he was ahead of me, and he was trying to pass mass, yoke and mass, but the chicane the, right after the back straight. And when I went around the corner, you could tell there had been an accident, and he was, it was like a, a, I don't know, like, like a toy that was stuck up. he was in the cash fencing. Not in the car, but out of the car, the cash fence It was horrible. It was probably one of, probably the most shocking thing I've ever seen. And the whole, to have to go out and race the next day was, was not easy.
3: Did Jochen Ma say anything to you?
2: No, I never talked. I know Jochen well. But I've never talked about that. Okay. I have no reason to talk
3: about that. Now, in Formula One, you had nine podiums, three of them in the United States, Detroit, Vegas, and place of your birth, Phoenix. What was the feeling like being on the podium next to Alain Prost and your karting rival Ricardo Patrese, in your home city in nineteen eighty nine? I remember one thing. It was
2: fucking hot. Phoenix and whatever the month was was very hot. Good. Good. Always finishing on the on the podium was was um, an achievement. And doing that in Phoenix with a car that wasn't as good as the two cars that were in front of us was was good. It was a good feeling. Don't forget you travel with these drivers and these teams all around the world like a circus. So you get to spend a lot of time with them even when you're not in a car. So we we were all, you know, we were all, it's not as if we didn't know each other. And I had raced with Ricardo a lot through go-karts and Formula 2 and and, and then Formula 1, so it was fun. I would have much rather finished second and have him finish
3: third, but it was good nonetheless. And you had two podiums in. At my favorite track, Parco Monza, with all the Tifosi's on the track, that must have been a very special feeling for you as you spent most of your time in Italy at that time.
2: Oh, very much so. I, I agree with you. I think Monza is is one of the greatest tracks. The, the Tifosi are wonderful. And I, one of the years I was up there with two Ferrari drivers, which was the only race the McLaren did not win that year. Both drivers broke their engine. 88? So yes, yes, yeah. And uh, what was good about that is my teammate finished fourth. Oh, yes, fourth. Derek Ward finished fourth that year. And Derek and I always had great competition.
3: Yes, I have uh, some questions on that later on. Now, how frustrating were the 1984 and 85 seasons with Paolo Pavanello run Alfa Romeo team? I was looking at the result. Most of the races you retired and that had to be a very frustrating season for you, two seasons for you. It was
2: horrible. I mean Rick, Ricardo and I were fighting over crumbs. There was never we, there was many false attempts, but I, I think what was proven in that season is that you cannot go from a Formula 3 team to a Formula One team and accept any success. There just there was no planning never the, the changes to, we only made one really good change once and the whole time I was there. It's before I forget what the year was maybe 84, Before, um, right up before we raced at Monte Carlo we changed from mechanical fuel injection to electronic fuel injection. And at the, I think I qualified fourth, three tenths off pole. That was the only positive change we did, but it broke in the race, it was always breaking. There was always some silly excuse as to why, why it would break. And the only time I ever got points was the first race. The first race I finished fourth in Brazil. I thought this was gonna be great, <laughs> it was just a disaster. Oh my god it was just terrible. I hated turning up with the races, it was that bad. With no no I think on the last race in Adelaide I think Ricardo and I broke in exactly the same place on exactly the same lap. So I was I was quite happy when that when all that was over. I don't really like very much talking about it
3: either. Understand. Now in nineteen eighty one you were second in your class at Le Mans driving the beautiful Martini Lancia how much did you enjoy sports car racing compared to Formula One? And is motivation to win the same when you have to share a car with other drivers?
2: Um, I, I forget who my teammates were, but I remember Alberto being one of them. who was a great driver, and uh, we got along very well. And um, Patrese might have been in the same car. It might have been him, me, Alberto, and Falletti. Falletti, or Facchetti was there. I, I, I always liked driving. Anything. I thought it was an honor to race for Lancia. The only problem was we had a two-liter car, so we couldn't go for the outright win. But um, we finished, uh, and uh, and everybody drove their heart out, and uh, it was a great experience. It was an experience that I I used when later I ended up racing with Jaguar for two years in sports cars, which I really enjoyed, because we could go for an outright win. But Le Mans is is one of those, those special races, like Monte Carlo, like Monza, like Indianapolis. That it's always it's always great to be able to participate. And it's phenomenal if you can participate and win.
3: Now, we come to the Derek Warwick question I have for you. He was your teammate in sports cars and Formula One. And I have this information based on a story in Motorsports Magazine, and he's quoted as saying, We all went to a training camp in Samoritz with Gunther Traub. On the first <coughs> night, we're all in the sauna having a chat, and I told Eddie I was surprised he'd signed as my number two. And then he said, he leapt up, banged his head on the ceiling and shouted, hey, I've got a contract that says I'm the number one. So do you remember this moment and who turned out to be number one after both of you called Tom Walkinshaw?
2: We both were number one. He had told us both the same story. As for bumping my head, I don't remember (laughs) bumping my head. Derek is, like all Englishmen, Derek is a very good storyteller. Uh, No, we we, we, we would fight a lot on the... During the season, we were teammates in the beginning.
3: He uh, dragged we you driving, out of the car, right? He were driving
2: the same car. Yes. Well, that was always interesting. We was going to qualify or whatever. It was good fun. It was a great car. Walk and Shaw ran a, a, an impeccable team. And the Jaguar was just a fun car. For once in my career, I can say that I had the best car on the track. And it was wonderful. You'd go to the races, always primed to give your best.
3: I think it was at Monza, where he dragged you out of the car?
2: <laughs> yeah, Yes, yeah. So, I qualify the car, I start the race, we're in the lead, I come in, and we had never practiced a, a driver change. We didn't practice, what we were Formula One drivers, we were above practicing things like CPO changes. So, I'm not getting out of the car quick enough or Derek doesn't think I'm getting out of really quick enough. He's, he's like a gorilla, he's pretty strong. Drags me out of the car, and knocks me like five feet away from it. So he gets in the car, my job was to tighten his belt and to help him get in. And uh, I, it, long story short, it took us a long time to get him out on the track. And Walkinshaw said nothing, didn't say one word. When we go to the next race, he tells us to be at the track an hour beforehand and he had a stopwatch in his hand, and I said, okay, now we're going to practice pit stops. We thought that uh, driver changes. We thought we were going to do it for like five minutes. It went on for an hour, in, out, in, out, in, out. And um, that was when we started to think a little bit more altruistically, and thinking of the other driver and the team, and not as egotistically as you are forced to be in Formula One. Formula One, everything has to be about your car, your tires, your engine. So that was that was uh, our indoctrination into what, how we had to behave in sports cars for for
3: Tom. You mentioned Nurburgring, which obviously is a great track, uh, but you also race at some other classic European circuits like Po and Rouen. Uh, which one was your favorite? Oh, Rouen! Rouen
2: was phenomenal. Rouen might be one of the most dangerous tracks I've ever driven. It. But it was so exciting, some of the many fast corners. It was great. I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed races that had an element of danger more than... I enjoyed the ones that were not ridiculously dangerous, but ones that there was potential if you made a mistake that, that you know that the price would be high because you had a choice of going up to the limit or not. And Rome was one of them. Poe was nice, but it wasn't very fast. Poe was very twisty. But I, I, if I recall correctly, I won Rouen in 77. And I, yes, I did win Rouen 77. And there's a lot of history there. Some yeah, great drivers race.
3: Yeah, you know, um, there's a lot of history and a lot of tragedies. Uh, is it the high-speed corners that make the Rouen so uh, oh, yeah. dangerous?
2: Absolutely. Yes, going up the hill, absolutely. I don't even remember if there were guard I mean, We raced at some places that were insane. That's, that, that's all in the past. They don't race at Rouen anymore.
3: Now, Eddie, you race against some of the greatest talents in the history of motor racing. I would like to get your take on three of them, please, uh, both on and off the track, if you could share your uh, experiences. Uh, first, one of my, this driver was my first favorite when I started following Formula One in '73, uh, Ronnie Peterson, and especially him waving you goodbye while going flat out in a corner at the Buenos Aires track. <laughs> Where did you get, a, you get all these stories? Well, you know, it's very easy to do uh, on the web.
2: Uh, okay, that, that Ronnie Peterson story. So, I, uh, I I told you about leaving Ferrari and then racing for Theodore. And I had raced with Ronnie for probably a year, for a year, uh, in uh, Group 5 at nevergreen And I had great races with him. Many times I got into trouble for bumping into him or doing things that you shouldn't do, but I did it because it gave me—I thought—an advantage. So I, I, I underst- You know, I, I knew I could keep pace in the sports car. And we're at, and we're now in uh, Argentina on the first lap of practice. And I'm going and in Argentina. There's a very long and very fast right-hand corner that brings you back towards the pits. And I'm going as fast as I possibly can, and I have, I'm holding the steering wheel so tight because the car is very nervous. And around the outside of me goes Ronald in the Lotus. He has one hand on the steering wheel, the other one waving at me. Like, see you later, and he just disappears. And I knew then that I had made a very big mistake um, not being more careful and trying to get into a better car than what I had. That's the baloney story, which I still remember. And as for drivers, Ronnie was my hero. Ronnie was the guy who raced the same place that I raced as a go-kart racer. I, he was the senior driver when I was at BMW, where I was always watching and understanding how he changed his car and how he drove. And he just had an incredibly happy personality. Of all the drivers I've ever met, I've been around, he's the one I admire the most. Not just for what he could do in the car, but his approach to life was phenomenal.
3: Okay. what else did you ask uh two more uh, second your renault teammate and le professor of racing alain pros
2: everybody complained about prost i i i never found them to be uh, He was blindingly quick um uh, very precise in everything he did did not use the car very much i i regret when i raced at renault i had so many mechanical failures because i I, every time I kept getting momentum I would there, I would fall out in Germany I could have won the race but I had a, a throttle cable break in England I had something break in Long Beach I had something break and I kept taking I just kept making it difficult but he was phenomenal a great driver socially I don't really know I, I turned up with the race team I raced I did by debrief and that was it so I I don't know of many drivers in his generation that were more efficient in being a race car driver than Alan Prost was.
3: Your thoughts on his McLaren team, Ayrton Senna?
2: Ayrton was different than everybody else. He uh, was very fast. He was like a... It was like, he was so aggressive on the race track. If you remember, do you remember that interview that Jackie Stewart did with Erwin Senna where he said you don't have to crash into so many cars? Yes. I just well, that kind of exemplifies what Erwin Senna, but he was spectacular. I mean, he had an incredible car control, very great in the, in the wet. The battle that he had with Alan Prost, I think was, as teammates, is one of the best battles you've ever seen with Formula One, and it was so close, so incredibly close. so what can be said about Art and Senna that hasn't already been
3: said? Right. Very little. Yeah, those battles he had with um, pros as McLaren teammates, unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, in Formula One, having raced for English, French, and Italian teams, what was the atmosphere and how serious was the approach to F1 in each team? The most
2: serious was Ken The less serious but the most fun was Leisure. And I think had Renault been managed better, they would have won many more races than they did.
3: How did you find Guy Ligier as a boss?
2: I thought he was great. I, I didn't see him very much, but I I, I like the fact that Jaboui was there. I enjoyed working with Jaboui. Lafitte was the first Formula One driver that I had as a teammate, that the year before had won races. So my beating him gave me a lot of confidence to go do other things. But he was, I, Lafitte was one of the nicest people I've ever met, because he, he was a great teammate, he was easy to work with, and socially he was a lot of fun. So they went about racing with a big smile on their face. Kentiro was a very disciplined. I would have loved, I should have stayed with Kentiro more years than I did, because there was a lot more to learn that I, I, that I didn't, or I didn't, when being in that place. But that was the first real Formula One team I drove for, was Ken's.
3: Now your image is on the Bog Warner Trophy. You must be very proud of this. And how does it compare to being on the podium in Formula One, in places like Monza, in your place of birth, Phoenix, AZ? Uh,
2: I, I'm an American, so Indianapolis is something that that weighs, that has weight, that has importance. So I, I, I know that. My name, my family's name, will be on that on that cup long after I'm gone. So that is something that historically has value to me. Technically, it's very dangerous to win. It's very dangerous to try. It's, it's uh, not an easy race to win, but it's different than a Formula One race. I, 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 I can't tell you standing on the podium in Monza was better. Maybe if I was standing on the podium first or in Canada first, it would have been different. But they're they're different. Formula 1 is different than IndyCar. They're two completely separate things.
3: Now, with all your great achievements in racing, uh, you consider your greatest race to be the German Group 5 Saloon car race, Nurburgring, 1976. Uh, Please tell us about this race, and how did the ride to the airport with Ronnie go? (laughs) So I was racing
2: against... uh, Ronnie was there, Stoke was there, and it was very, I believe the track was damp, and I, I had caught up to Ronnie, and we had one corner to go, and um, I think I got overly rambunctious and hit the back of his car, and he spun, and I don't remember how I finished, but I think I crossed the finish line, and he was furious, furious, and I, and, uh, I just stayed away from him. And Nearpash M- didn't say anything until it was time to go to the airport, I needed to ride to the airport. And guess who Nearpash put me in the car with? Ronnie Peterson, who was apoplectic. And um, I did, he, he, I'm sure he did everything he possibly could to scare the life out of me in the way to the airport. We went over curves, up sidewalks, sideways, everything he possibly could do. And, uh, and I just kept looking out of the window. So it it was an epic airport ride. I've never had another ride like that to the airport, ever, in 30 years of racing.
3: You mentioned family. Uh, Your son is now racing in Europe. How much are you involved in guiding and managing his career? Very little. He does it on himself. Okay. And I remember your brother, Ross, he used to race in Japan. Um, Is he still involved in racing in some capacity?
2: No, he isn't. He lives in California. He raises. His, he has four children. Okay.
3: Okay. Now, you know to basically sum it up, uh, Eddie. You went from winning European karting championships all the way to the top. What will be your advice to young American drivers aspiring to become first American uh, to a Grand Prix and World Championship success since 1978?
2: Stop complaining that you're not getting drives in Formula One and put the effort in. Go to Europe. Learn the tracks. And the people. No one is going to come on your shoulder and say, okay, you can go drive a Formula One car now just because you're an American. Put the effort in. Without effort, there's no no result.
3: Now, uh, with the Vegas Grand Prix coming up, uh, to this day, you are the most experienced American racing in Formula One. Uh, Now we have three races in the U.S., one American team, door half open for Michael and Reddy. How do you see the future of Formula One in America?
2: Excellent. I think it's it's wonderful. I'm jealous that I did not have that many races and, and wasn't that popular when I was racing. I think it would be great. I love racing. I love all forms of racing. I enjoy NASCAR, sports car, Formula One. I think there's a place for Formula One in the States, but it'll only really grow when you have American race car drivers that American fans can identify with. And that's there's there's nobody there yet that can stand a chance
3: to be in the podium. Do you follow a European junior formula these days? No. Okay, Okay, great. Well, uh, Mr. Cheever, I want to thank you so much. It's a great honor and I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, before we go, would you like to have a message for our listeners? We have listeners all over the world. And like I told you at Road Atlanta, we've been doing our weekly podcast since 2005.
2: I'm not, I'm not very good at doing that, so please I apologize on my behalf. But I think anybody that's talking about racing is excited about racing is a friend of
3: mine okay thank you so much and you have a good day thank you bye bye
0: bye bye mr cheever thanks for joining f1weekly.com nasser
3: and sir you mentioned the uh, vegas grand prix ross brown said oops they forgot to take into account uh, weather in vegas and i'm going to tell you something in 1994 I was in San Diego, and one of my co-workers was posted to the Vegas office, and he invited me over for Thanksgiving. And I thought it's desert, so I take no warm clothes, and I show up there, and it was freezing. So uh, we all make mistakes, so they miss the uh, weather report on this one. But sir, I am wishing and hoping that Liberty Media has risk coverage from Liberty Mutual hotel rates and ticket prices are no longer eight miles high but still no shortage of black limousines in las vegas i am sure you have heard there is talk on the street in vegas that it has become land of confusion for many locals and tourists detours construction and catering to the 100k club that will be chauffeured from airport to the strip in a rolls royce this is all part of fom's razzmatazz of the century. Since hotel rates are tumbling, many people who reserved rooms a year ago are asking for a refund. All that glitter and glamour has not impressed the man who has won 17 of the 20 races this season and who can blame him. According to Max, Vegas is more for the show than racing and he was also quoted as saying, I have no interest in meeting movie stars and rock stars. That's Max for you. I have a feeling this is the perfect event for people who crave these things. Lewis Hamilton, Megan the Stallion, and the latest and greatest F1 aficionado, Machine Gun Kelly. And sir, as you know, I'm old school, but I would like to fight around. Recently, I was at Watkins Glen with F1 Weekly Familia member, Signor Pasquale. Now that is a beautiful track in a great location with great racing heritage. Wishing and hoping race was taking place there. The question I have for you, Mr. Host, even though the first race has not even taken place, do you think the city and people of Las Vegas will see this 10-year contract play out?
0: I do, because I think it is going to be a pretty big deal. It's going to be very, very exciting. And F1 people... If everybody tips really well, because that's what it's all about in Vegas, if you tip good, that young lady's gonna be back with more. I mean drinks and stuff, Nasser, of course. We're we're a family show. But yes, it's gonna be very, very exciting. And I have to admit, the layout is very exciting, intriguing, fast, long straights, and you do see the entire city and will be so sick of that dome. But we'll see what they play on the dome while they're driving. You know, it's going there's going to be a lot of distractions. This is going to take a, a a very Max Verstappenish kind of high concentration for everybody. So, it's going to be intriguing, it's going to be exciting, and if everybody tips well, I think we're going to come out of this on top and Liberty will lose a little money, but I think it'll be around for 10 years. I mean, The paddock. Did you read about this building? It's a behemoth. Three football fields long. Three stadium lengths long. It's unbelievable. 20 miles of just stainless steel arm rails for the people. So they don't fall down because they'll be drunk. It's fascinating. They've thrown so much money at this that I think we will be in the red for a couple of years. But eventually, Live Nation, Liberty... All of those people will be happy,
3: yeah, I understand they have drained the water um where the uh, Venetian is, and have turned that into a, like a VIP enclosure or something like that. I mean, this is just going o t t big time, but its figures, what do you expect now what what is so interesting? They are trying to promote Formula One in America, and most people in America live on the eastern seaboard area, and they will be watching this races. 1 a.m. on Sunday morning. That's
0: perfect planning. What say you? I thought the, time, the, the times are bizarre. FP1 starts at 10 p.m. FP2 is going to be at midnight when it's really cold in the desert. And even the little lizards are hiding. But it, it is what it is. They pick these times. They want everything to be dark at night. Just like going to a big nightclub, except this is an entire city. Vegas is much more pretty at night, Nasser, so you're going to have to get with it, brother.
3: Yes, and um, talking of the layout, a lot of people have made comment on social media, it looks like a pig upside down, and which led me to think, you know, hey, this race should have been called Hormel
0: Spam Grand Prix. Hormel will be served, including spam at the Filipino free brunch. Very good, very good. Okay, sir.
3: Regardless of what we say, what happens, the show must go on. Let's look forward to the race and what we can expect behind Max. Like Singapore, Vegas is a street race and after dark. But I don't think history will repeat itself. Red Bull have learned their lesson and learned it very well. Now whether Checo has learned his lesson or not, we will find out in the Vegas evening. I hope your prophecy comes true and Lando Norris gets his maiden victory in Vegas. It will be quite a place to celebrate for the young man with an American team principal. They say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but there is one entity that does not adhere to this rule. I am sure Scuderia Ferrari will find a way in the race or in the pits, let's hope not on the formation lap, to amuse the global audience. What will be very sweet is if Nico Hulkenberg can celebrate his long, long long-awaited first podium finish in Vegas. It is a street race, so I expect a safety car or two. A lucky break for some may rattle the cage of others. They're even talking about rain on Friday or Saturday, I believe. Liberty Media, Live Nation, and all the marketing tools they have, I am sure they can put on a great show. So much so that perhaps the Grand Prix can become a sideshow to the main musical event someday, or whatever event they are holding there.
0: What say you? This could become like Cirque du Soleil. You know, they came around, it was new, a phenomenon, and they're stuck in Vegas. You get more Cirque than you could possibly ever take Soleil, so they're there permanently. So Celine Dion, I think, has been there permanently, and everybody. Once they go to Vegas, they just sort of hang out. Duncan Shane, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I have an idea. That's good. Anything else you want to say on LV before we move on? Well, I'm looking forward to it, and I I encourage everybody. You know how people have parties on Oscar evening, Oscar presentations. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to get some caviar. We're going to get some champagne. We're going to break the budget and celebrate in the Vegas style at home in your living room. Lighten things up. Have some fun with this whole thing because it's going to be at the race is at 10 p.m. Now, senior citizens who are used to going over to the buffet at 5 p.m., to make sure that they're in bed by 7.30 p.m., are going to have a tough time with this race. But other than that, it's going to be awesome, Nasser.
3: I think it's going to look very spectacular on TV, and I think that's the image they're trying to portray. But let's hope uh, it's a clean, good race, and everybody has an opinion, so we can understand that. But it's good to have three Formula One races in the US of A. And unfortunately, between the two of us, we have not gone to any one of them. But hey, when the uh, prices come down to normal stuff, maybe
0: we will show up. What say you? And yes, and uh, and don't forget, folks, the actors' strike is over. So this opens up a big, big entourage possibility. We could see Brad Pitt there. You know Tom Cruise is going to be hanging out, feeling good. All the stars are going to be there. Except for Nasser and myself, but it's going to be great stuff. I, You know, the governor's going to be there, heads of state. They even think that King Charles might show up. You're talking about Charles Leclerc? (laughs) King Charles, he's... Oh, I'm sorry, I I may have forgotten to give you the news. The Queen has left the building. Oh dear, so sorry to hear that.
3: And sir, with that, we're going to move on. We have to... Now we present a new segment, 3M. Memorable motorsports moments. This is real stuff, and not something put together by scotch tape. To start with, we go back to the 1953, your home Grand Prix, French Grand Prix at Reims. And will you tell our listeners how Reims is pronounced in French, please? Reims. Ah,
0: and it's actually, the track is actually in the small village of
3: Gueux. And both you and I have been there. Exactly. It's worth it. Oh, well, not only that, but you
0: found me. With my beautiful picture.
3: If you had put a picture of Sepang, Silverstone, or any modern-day track, or a present-day track, I would have never, ever uh, sent you a a text message like Pedro. Reims is what brought us together. Bravo. Okay. Now, in terms of race wins, the uh, by nations UK, United Kingdom, is top of the heap with 308 Grand Prix wins. Some places it's say 309, but I think that's because one of the British Grand Prix, the two drivers, shared the winning car. The winning tradition was started by Mike Hawthorne driving a Ferrari. This is how history was recorded on July 5th, 1953.
4: The race of France proved to be just about as exciting an event as anyone could wish to see. One of the early leaders was Gonzales, number 20. Right through the race, there was a terrific neck-and-neck struggle between young Mike Hawthorne of Britain at the wheel of a Ferrari, number 16, and Sangio number 18, driving a Maserati. First one, then the other took the lead. Hawthorne proved to be the first British driver to win the event since 1923, but only by about 50 feet. Two-fifths of a second separated Sangio from Gonzalez, who was first.
3: Well done, Mike. And sir, one more thing about dreams is that Giancarlo Baghetti was running second behind uh, Dan Gurney on the final lap and to the stretch to the checkered flag. And at the last second, because of the long straight and slip streaming, he was able to get out and win the race. And it, that was his first championship uh, race. And so he won on debut. So good for him. Okay, so moving on the pages of history, we go to Nürburgring, 1957. Regarded by many as the greatest victory in Grand Prix history, driving a Maserati 250F, Juan Manuel Fangio had to make a late pitch stop for fuel. And he took tires also. He came out 48 seconds behind the second Ferrari of Peter Collins. His teammate Hawthorne was the race leader. What followed was a relentless pursuit during which Fangio broke the record track record several times. On lap 21 of 22, Keep in mind in those days they used to use the full 14 mile long Nordschleifer, the green hill. Fangio took the lead to win his greatest and final victory.
4: The Lancia Ferraris round the carousel. Followed closely by Fangio the Hunter. His blood's up. He can't see him yet, but he knows he's close. The gap. Is 13.5 seconds. Muzo in fourth place. And Moss with the bouncing van fifth. Beira is back up to sixth. And Harry Shell running seventh. And through the south curve, Hunted and Hunter rip away into their 20th lap. Hawthorne, Collins and Fanjo now visibly working hard. He's ringing every drop of performance available from his Maserati. At the end of the straight, just short of the piss, oh, it's fantastic. Fanjo is right with the two Ferraris. He's lapped in 9 minutes, 17.4. That's 24.2 seconds inside his 56-lap record. And in the south curve, Mike sliding wide. Collins is in tight, and the old man is third in eating them alive. Behind the pits to the north curve, he's diving down the inside under braking on Collins' inside. He's through! He's through into second place. Yes, here at Versailles, it's Fangio. Fangio leads across the Adenauer Bridge. The German race marshals wave in homage to one of history's greatest drives. Hawthorne hangs on in second place. And Gregory, in the white Maserati, has been lapped, whilst Collins has fallen back. Edgar Barth leads the Formula 2 class since Salvadori's Cooper has broken its suspension. These 1600cc Porsches treat the Grand Prix like a 24-hour race. They just run and run. And at the carousel for the last time, the crowds acknowledge the maestro's finest race. But Hawthorne still hasn't given up. He's giving it all he's got. But poor Pete Collins' clutch is frozen, one goggle lens is smashed, so he's settled for third. Fangio takes the flag, winning his 24th and final Grand Prix and the Drivers' World Championship for the fifth time, the fourth in successive years. As he pulls in through the gate at the end of the pits, Mike Hawthorne, hatless, draws alongside, and look at the smile on his face. Look at that reception. Adriana Fangio's wife is ready with a kiss and the ecstatic Maserati mechanics with more. They shoulder their champion to the victory dais. The British boys show how to lose with grace. They're delighted for the old boy as they call him. Ugolini kisses Hawthorne and College joins the party. Fangio's greatest drive is history. He's just become world champion driver for the fifth time, a record still unbeaten. The remarkable footage we've just seen remained hidden away in German archive cans for nearly 40 years. Only recently recovered, it stands today as a monument to a time when the finest virtues of amateur sport could still prevail, even at the most professional level of Grand Prix competition.
3: Now we move on to 1969, Parco Monza. Jackie Stewart and Jochen Rind were great rivals on the track and good friend, friendly neighbours in Geneva. In one of his interviews, this is very, very funny stuff for me. Jackie talks about both of them going to a race with their spouses in separate cars, and somewhere on the highway or the autostrada or autobahn, Nina Rind had to jump in the back seat of Jackie's car as the passenger door on Jochen's Lotus Elan flew off. Living up to Colin Chapman's philosophy. Build a great car, just add lightness. Here is the dramatic finish to the 1969 Italian drawn tree between Jackie and Jochen, and that victory made Jackie. The world champion for the first time.
1: We're looking down at the approach to the Parabolica, down to the violoni 185 miles an hour, four cars virtually together, and down to the Parabolica they come. Ken Stewart holds the line. On this, the last lap, somebody's challenging, it's Ridd going through. Jock and Ridd takes the lead of the Parabolica on the last corner of the last lap. Beltoise. Beltoise going through, it's Beltoise taking the lead. And it's going to be a French match for the win. It must be. It's, it's over the line together. And it's almost a dead heat. It's Jackie Stewart, Rich Beltoise and McLaren. Nobody has ever seen the finish of a motor race like that.
3: Now we go to the far east. 1976 Japanese Grand Prix at Mount Fuji Circuit. A lot has been said and scripted about this race. So no rush to judgment here. This was James Hunt's final opportunity to take the title from his fierce rival and good friend, Nicky Lauda. Mario Andretti won the race from pole position. This was his first Formula One win since his maiden victory for Ferrari in 1971 at And
1: Look at that! Hunt going past Alan Jones! James Hunt has gone past Alan Jones. That assures him of third place. Hunt moves up to third place in front of Alan Jones. Alan Jones holding the highest position he's ever held in a Grand Prix. Mario Andretti. And Mario Andretti takes the flag. Mario Andretti has won the Japanese, the first Japanese Grand Prix. And Depay trying to get by, but he's a lap behind. And there's James Hunt. James Hunt finishing third and almost catching Patrick Depaye. And James Hunt is the world champion. What a finish. Our new world champion... James Hump by just one
0: single point.
3: Now we come to Jerez de la Frontera, the 1986 Tio Pepe Spanish Grand Prix, one of the most, most, most memorable races for me, and I shall explain gladly. Arnage and Ayrton Senna were at each other's throat every opportunity they got. One of the classic moments between the two came in the closing laps of the 1986 Spanish Grand Prix, when Mansell had to make a late pit stop for fresh tyres. Then began the hunt to retake the lead, going faster and faster and catching Senna lap by lap. This is how it went down.
1: They're on lap 71 now. This is... The last lap but one. Yes, the critical thing for Mansell was not g- quite getting past Frost at the beginning of the lap as he went up the pit straight when he caught him up and uh, then having to sit behind him for very nearly a whole lap and that uh, really cost him because he actually dropped back on Senna while he was stuck behind Frost and that was the vital thing. It doesn't look like he's going to quite catch him now. Yes, but Senna's catching somebody, I see there. is, I'll say again, it's one of the arrows. I say again, if there is any delay on the part of the man who's in front of Senna, in terms of moving over, this will give Nigel Mansell his chance. This is lap 71, the last lap but one, and Senna is past the arrows, so he's clear. Is Mansell going to get past as easily? Here is Senna, starting lap 72, the last lap of the Spanish Grand Prix. And Mansell is now 1.57 seconds behind him. He's going to catch him soon, so there's going to be a right scramble all the way around the last lap. Another three or four corners. Senna with... The big advantage of being in front, but that's all with the advance of fresh tar and, and a considerably uh, greater degree of grip. So, into the last stages of the Spanish Grand Prix, they're coming down to the S's now, which is about halfway round the last lap. And very shortly, as Tina runs a bit wide and goes up onto the curving, Mansell is going to be on the rear wing of the black and gold Lotus with its Renault engine. And it he is. He is. Now, this is the 140 mile an hour turn 10. Into turn 11. And Mansell could conceivably take Senna coming out of the hairpin on the final approach to the last straight of the Spanish Grand Prix. It's all going to depend on the exit from turns 14 and 15 which they're approaching now then into turn 16 the hairpin It's going to be one of the closest Grand Prix finishes whatever happens that we've seen for a long long time they're coming up to the hairpin now this is it down into second gear and Mantle if he gets it right can sprint out of the rear wing of Senna's car Senna moves across he's keeping Mantle back and he wins Mantle won't like that any more than he likes in Brazil, but there is no doubt about the fact that Senna was taking advantage of the fact that he's got a clear circuit in front of him to keep Mantle back, and Ayrton Senna has won his third Grand Prix in the Lotus here at Spain today by, what, a car's length or even less from Nigel Mantle, a brilliant drive by both of them, With Alain Prost in third position, he's still to come home as the Frenchman at the end of the Spanish Grand Prix. But what a fantastic finish.
3: Sir, on a personal note, I would like to share this with members of F1 Weekly Familia. This was one of those races each season which was not televised live on ESPN. So on Sunday morning, while at work, I called my usual contact at San Jose Mercury News Sports Desk to get the results from an intern at that time by the name of, still remember his name, Mike Gorsh. He said to me, I was waiting for your call. Let me get the report. Then he said something I will never forget. In one of the closest finishes in Grand Prix history, Ayrton Senna held off Nigel Mansell to win the Spanish Grand Prix man talk about frisón in 1986 and frisón all through the years in 2023 but wait there's more when dr miguel and i went to preseason testing at this track the f- which was the first year of the hybrid era dr miguel sweet talked the lady who was serving us to give me the empty bottle of Teo pepe and Teo pepe was the sponsor of this race this bottle is now proudly displayed on my f1 bookshelf a beautiful daily reminder of a great race between two great drivers. As the host will say,
0: Oh, the memories!
3: Thanks for the memory of Schubert's serenade Little
2: things of jade And traffic jams and anagrams And bills we never paid
0: How lovely it
3: was Gracias, senor. Now we move on to Spa 2000, the greatest move ever, as said by many, many people and probably true. Even Ricardo Zonta went on the team radio to say these guys are crazy. The mother of all passes put on by Mika on Michael
1: now Hakkinen's best chance is if Schumacher has to follow Zonta closely through Eau Rouge and I don't think that's going to happen particularly this time around I think they're going to pass Zonta on another part of the racetrack because that's what gives Hakkinen his best shot Schumacher in dirty air and then Hakkinen with the extra straight line speed and once again look Michael's having to defend and Mika and there's a but the back marker's in the way but can he do finish. it yes he's done it a brilliant move there either side of Zonta and Hakkinen brilliantly takes the lead of the Belgian Grand Prix and you can see the delight in the McLaren garage because that could well have decided the race a superb, gritty determined, forceful move from Mika Hakkinen takes the lead in the McLaren Mercedes and he is on lap 41, three laps to go at the end of this one and he's obviously got superior performance I would expect him now to pull away particularly on that approach up to Le Combe out of Rouge.
3: Now they say there must be order in Deutschland, and there must be chaos when Alonso is in the team. He cooked an Hungarian goulash in the pits in 2007. His Hungarian rhapsody cost Ron Dennis and McLaren team $100 million
4: to be faster than your teammate. There's a psychological factor as well as the tactics can also mean uh, the psychological tactics. And I think Hamilton just wants to put down the marker. He wants to be in front of his teammate. Pole position here is putting you in a a dominant position, very difficult circuit to overtake. Uh, I don't know what the rules are about their their tactics and fuel loads and stuff, whether or not he gets an advantage by being ahead of his teammate, I don't know. Well, at the moment, Alonso having to wait again for the optimum
1: moment to go out onto the racetrack. But he's definitely putting the harder tires on. There's Lewis Hamilton queuing up behind him. And they've have they raised the lollipop to let uh, Alonso out. Yep, they want him out of there. No, Alonso's not getting on with it. Only a minute and 40 to go. He's, is he blocking Hamilton here? Is that a bit of a tactic within the team there to give Hamilton a bit of a headache? I think
3: it might well be. That's really, really, that's really up to you now. Chuck. And so now we come to Monza. Love and music have no language. After Pierre Gasly's one and only win so far at Monza, the same can be said about the wonderful world of Formula One motor racing, thanks to this wonderful commentary on the final lap by Monsieur Julien Fabreau of Canal Plus.
5: DRS ouvert, l'accélération vers Ascari, ce ne sera pas avant Ascari, ça ne peut qu'être après, la chicane d'Ascari, il faut encore tenir, allez Pierre, il faut tenir, jusque dans les derniers instants, il reste la parabolique tout au bout là-bas, elle est loin, elle est infiniment loin, c'est parabolique, écarte-toi, ne le laisse pas t'aspirer Il se met à l'intérieur, il a fait de la récupération d'énergie pour essayer de sortir de la parabolique. Elle est presque là, elle est presque là, cette victoire Accélère, accélère Oui, il va aller la chercher Ne lâche pas La victoire de Pierre Gasly Il l'a fait Victoire de Pierre Gasly Victoire de La victoire française 24 ans, 3 mois et 18 jours après Olivier Panis La France De nouveau victorieuse en Formule 1, il l'a fait Pierre Gasly Exceptionnel, victoire historique Pierre Gasly, vainqueur du Grand Prix d'Italie Ah il y a de la déception bien sûr chez McLaren, écoutez ces noms, Trintignant, Sever, Beltoise, Lafitte, Depaillet, Jabouille, Arnoux, Pironi, Prost, Tambay, Allez-y, Panis et aujourd'hui, Pierre Gasly, vainqueur d'un Grand Prix de Formule 1. Oui monsieur, oui madame.
3: Now we come to the cool down lap and look at some lighter memorable moments. Never a dull moment. This is standard equipment on a contract <laughs> when any team signs with Monty, the one and only Juan Pablo Montoya, be it Formula One, IndyCars or jet Dryer in Lane Car. Now this uh, clip we're going to play here is prior to the 2006 season opener in Australia.
1: Juan Pablo Montoya has walked out of a press conference ahead of this Sunday's Australian Grand Prix. The Williams driver left the conference when two comedians posing as reporters kept up a stream of inane questions, as you're about to hear. The
4: rising number one of Formula One, Juan. One, one wonders, should Juan only win one Formula One one year, would Juan want to have won that one in round one, Juan? One? Well, one of them would be in round one. Do the best in their class. Right.
5: Do you uh, see their stops, or I walk off?
4: Yeah, the racing car driver. do you know? You must people say the painter.
5: Have you tried Ash? I can't play golf. I'm in a prison. Hey, I'm asking. Can you play? Um. Right. Thank you very much.
4: No. And with that, uh, one of Michael Schumacher's chief rivals was gone, leaving sponsors disappointed, and uh, no doubt the uh, comedians
3: delighted. Next, expect the unexpected, part and parcel of signing Kimi Raikkonen. Brazil 2006, one of the greatest careers in Formula 1 or any form of motor racing coming to an end. Football legend Pelé presented the legend of Formula 1 Michael Schumacher with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Only driver missing from the ceremony was Kimi Raikkonen. And Martin Brundle was there to find out the reason.
1: Kimmy raikkonen doesn't seem too interested in the um, doesn't seem too interested in the proceedings going on up there. Kimmy, you missed the presentation by Pele.
2: Yeah.
1: Will you get over it? (laughs) Yeah, I was having a shit. (laughs) Okay, thanks for that. Now, yeah, obviously you'll have a nice light car on the grid then.
3: Finally, sir, we do a super tram. Take a jumbo across the water like to see America in the Indy 500. The Indy 500 is more than a race. It's an American institution which first began in 1911. Over the years, there have been many great victories and close finishes at the Brickyard. My favorite is from the 1982 race. There was drama at the start when young Penske driver from Southern California, Kevin Cogan, crashed into A.J. Foyt and Mario Andretti. With six laps to go, the heat was on from Bakersfield, California's Rick Mears against Gordon Choncock from Coldwater, Michigan. Mears was six seconds down and closing at a rate of one second a lap. This is how it went down on the final
0: lap.
2: Coming out of the last turn.
0: Yep, there's nothing but frustration there. Now watch this. Making the move as they come to the finish line.
4: There's Mears, moving up. Moving up, and it was just a little over a car length, about 20 feet. Let's go to Bill Clinton. Car
2: well, owner Roger Penske has just it's talked to
4: Rick Mears. Right
2: Rick, I know it's kind of tough even to concentrate. Have you ever been in a better duel than that? No, I haven't. That was a good race. It really was. Gordon was doing a hell of a job. He had her He had her everywhere but straight a couple of times. And uh, I was trying
3: my damn to get him, and I just couldn't do it. Folks... Most of these events are available on YouTube. The six laps, last six laps of Indy 500 is one of the best motor racing you can ever see, and it's highly recommended. Mr. Rogers, any thoughts
0: on this segment, please? Very educating, very moving, brings back those memories. I'm a little teary-eyed right now. Oh, dear.
3: Okay, sir, now we go. Faces going places. Kimi Antonelli, we've talked about this quite a bit over the last few years because he is one of the brightest talents around. If he can win the Formula 2 championship in his first attempt, then I think he is on his way to being the next Oscar Piastri, if not the next Lewis Hamilton. However, if he takes two or three years to take the title, then it will be a long and winding road, and you know what is waiting for you at the end of this road. The neon light is always flashing. Vacancy available. Welcome to the Heartbreak Hotel. Fabio Limer will check you in gladly. The reason I say this Mercedes uh, he's in the Mercedes program. They have decided to take him from Formula Regional Europe Freca as it's called which he won this year. And initially, we are going to put him in Formula 3, but they're going to skip that and go straight into Formula 2. He's very young. I will be very, very surprised. And I will be very happy for him if he can win the championship in his first year. But there are so many talented drivers who will be in their second year, third year. Uh, it really needs uh, Charles Leclerc or Russell or Lewis Hamilton. To win in first attempt and maybe he's one of them and we will see how it works out. Oh this is interesting. Now we come to our new segment called Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airman. This is basically just the opposite of faces going places. Here we talk about drivers who are out to lunch, a real serious extended lunch along with their management. In other words going nowhere real fast and this is not a personal assault on these kids. is just what I'm saying is based on their performance and what they have delivered in racing so far. So the first member of this club is all the way from Paraguay, Joshua Dirksen. He is of German heritage, just like one of their ex-presidents, wonderful Alfredo Straussner. But that's another story. This year, Joshua jockeyed in Formula Regional European Championship by Alpine like I said, also known as Frecka. This is what you do normally before the main European Formula 3. And, you know, there is no other Formula 3 because they've changed the name. So there is no German F3, British F3. It's just European Formula 3. In 20 races, he scored zero wins, zero pole position and one podium. Total points at the end of the season 26, placing him 19th in the championship. Now this was his second year in the championship. Last year, from 20 races, he had 0 wins, 0 pole and 0 podium but finished 14th in the championship with 40 points. With this wonderful performance and pedigree, you may ask yourself, where is my large Formula 3 automobile? Oh no, not in the case of Joshua. He is going straight into Formula 2 also. Now Mr. Rogers, I am amazed how much money families are willing to spend on little Joey's racing career with basically no hope of any professional success. And again, based on results, not as somebody's personal opinion. A lot of these kids who are sponsored by DDP, that is Daddy's Deep Pockets, can possibly make a career for themselves if they go into a smaller series where they can be successful and have a chance of being hired as a professional driver. Talented young drivers could not make it to Formula One or IndyCars cars have made a decent career in other forms of motorsports, like Rafa Matos from Brazil, who has been very successful in Trans Am racing lately in the U.S., and young American Neil Faragin, who is a BMW junior racing in European theater, and he used to be a member of the Red Bull Academy. Drivers like Tom Christensen, Sebastian Buemi, Jose Maria Lopez have all made very successful and well-paid careers outside the world of Formula 1 and IndyCar Racing. And Senor, your thoughts on Joshua's jump to Formula 2?
0: If he's really, really talented, it'll work like Kimi Raikkonen. If he's not gifted and he's just a regular schmuck, eh, it's going to kill him. It's going to ruin his entire career. But sometimes maybe that's the best thing to do. Go back to school, or better yet, the plumber's union is always looking for good people.
3: Yes. You know, Tatiana Calderon, who raced in, I think she was in Formula 2 also, uh, GP3 and Formula 3. She's now trying to get a ride in IndyCar racing with AJ Ford's team. So, you know... This is the part of motor racing that I really don't like. But as one mechanic said to me, "Look at all the people who are employed by drivers like these." So, two ways to looking at the same thing. Okay, sir. You know, we have to talk about more about Fernando Alonso. It's a new track record for Machismo. The incredible podium dash for Alonso gets him a new record. This I'm talking about the Sao Paulo podium. Most podiums, <laughs> kind of like Nico Hulkenberg record, most podiums at a track without a wing. He has been on the podium nine times at Interlagos, the place where he won both his world championships, but has never been on the top step of the podium. And hopefully, someday it will change, because he's going to race in Formula 1 when he's 64.
0: What say you? When I'm 64... Exactly. Yeah, he's going to be around for years. Him and Lewis, as they get up there in their 60s, we'll have they'll have special walkers made out of carbon fiber. It'll be really fun. And the other thing, you know, a lot of these young drivers, they see the Lando Norrises and the Fernandos and what beautiful lives they have. Like, I just recently found out that Lando Norris, he brought the hoodie. You know what I'm talking about? The hoodie? He brought that to McLaren. McLaren never had a hoodie. But Lando Norris said, you know what? I need a hoodie. And now McLaren sells hoodies for $125. It's fascinating. You mean Lewis did not bring this culture uh, when he was at McLaren? Well, I don't know if you've seen pictures of Lewis... When he was at McLaren, and then if you put him side by side with Lewis of today, it was a young and innocent Lewis who didn't wear a hoodie in those days. He brushed his teeth and finished his dinner and went to bed early in those days, Nasser. So, uh, yes.
3: Now, there was a photo of him floating around on social
0: media, how he arrived dressed up in Vegas. Have you seen that? No, I have not. But this And this, this is the other thing. I think Fernando will arrive normal because he's machismo. And Hulkenberg always arrives pretty mellow. But, I mean, I've even seen Sonoda all dressed up. Botas always comes in something intriguing. So, yes, Lewis Hamilton has to be the winner when it comes to fashion. Just because. So, yeah, I can't imagine what his wardrobe... He probably has, like, 16 Louis Vuitton steamer trunks... That follow him around with all his attire.
3: Good, good. The um, Macau Grand Prix is happening this coming weekend and it is one of my all-time favorite races and they had moved away from Formula 3 but now the Formula 3 is racing there again and this um, past weekend they were had the Formula 4 races there, the same Macau Grand Prix track and the winner, and again, available on YouTube. The winner was uh, the kid we interviewed a few months ago. English kid, Arvid Lindblad. He is in the Red Bull program. And so we wish him all the best. And of course, there are many other talented drivers there. So we wish everybody all the best. But and this race is available on YouTube. And I always watch it. And what I've enjoyed over the years, I'm not sure if they will do the same format is the race starts uh, for a few for a lap or two it's in english then it switches to chinese then it switches to portuguese and you know so it's very international and so
0: is formula 1 weekly so we like this kind of uh, diversity keep up the good work nas so predictions for las vegas sir the excitement the the thrilling the diamonds are forever race
3: Yes sir. Well, you know, maybe they should have Shirley Bessie give out the, uh, you know, winners' trophy. Well, let's put it this way, two more races to go. So basically tough, but two more races for Max to win. So that's one podium step. Maybe Ferrari will be on the podium because they won a race in Singapore, at the same side of tra- type of track. And uh, I just hope that we don't have a lot of people go off track because oh, it was very core, it was slippery, it was like skating on, you know, ice and one excuse after another. But um, I would like to see uh, a Ferrari, three drivers from three different teams. That'll be very good. And if he can get a Hulkenberg on the podium or some offline that you don't expect, that will be great. But I am, I am expecting some sort of a, a safety car situation. It could be
0: a long safety car. I don't know. What are are your thoughts on this? Very simple, Nasser. I go in a scientific kind of method. Max will crash in Q3. Fernando takes pole. Lewis will be P2. It's going to be exciting, Nass. It's going to be the good old days all over again, but in Vegas. Oh boy, revenge is sweet. So it's going to be 10 o'clock. So it's going to be
3: 1 o'clock here. The race starts at 10 o'clock, right? The race starts at 10 p.m. California time. Uh, which is the same as Vegas, right? Pacific Standard Time. You betcha. Actually, I'll put I'll put on my um, alarm. You know, and I, I want to watch this race um, with all the hoopla that's going on live. Oh well, it's
0: going to be Vegas time. You know what that will be. Yeah. Well, the pre-race is going to be the most important part. Yeah. I mean, we're going we're gonna be inundated. We're gonna have a vast array of stars, sports figures. Local musicians, clowns, then you'll have the Cirque du Soleil people, and you'll have all the Elvis Presley impersonators. I mean, there's going to be a lot going on. And, of course, you have our favorite dude, Duncan Shane. He's going to be there. Wayne Newton? Of course, Wayne. This is Wayne Newton's town. Well, you know, the guy they really needed for some flair is gone. Liberace. That's true. Well, and, and then you, we might as well just bring in the Rat Pack. Where is Frank and Joey Bishop? Thank you, Nasser. Keep up the good work. An outstanding interview. A fantastic podcast. The zeros are on their way, Nasser. I want to thank everybody who listens to this program. Thank you. We love you. Good night. Bye-bye.